This morning we're in Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 30. Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 30. If you have a Bible with you, or we have pews again this week. Let's give it up for pews. Uh, If you're just visiting, that was kind of half-hearted. But if you're just visiting with us for the first time, uh, we've been in an off-site location for the past three, is it three or four weeks um, because of this road project that has gone unexpectedly long. Um, So we're glad to be back, and we have Bibles in the pews. If you don't have a Bible at home, just take that one. It's it's yours. Um, But uh, open to Judges chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, Earlier this week, I gave my son Sam the short version of this text. Sam is five years old. And when I gave him the synopsis or summary of this text, his eyes just sparkled with this look of sheer wonder. I've never seen my son so excited about the Bible. And at bedtime, I got out his children's Bible to read the next story. Uh, We're working our way through the Jacob cycle right now in Genesis. But Sam said to me, Dad, I don't want to read that tonight. I I want you to read me uh, the story about that king who gets stabbed while he's on the potty. (laughs) So I thought about it, and we did. Um, At uh, Holy Trinity Church in Red Oak, England, south of London, there's actually a room with a plaque. It's dedicated to uh, the Reverend Alex Shuttleworth, because he once, when he was a a curate and learning how to be in ministry, um, he preached through this text. This was like his final exam. And the question was, can he get through this text without saying something fireable? And he did. He did. And so this time around, the text was given to me with, I think, a similar challenge. So uh, believe it or not, I have edited my words time and time again and purged it of all of the jokes I could make. So uh, if you send any emails this week, please let them be compliments about how mature I am. I am not a five-year-old at heart. No, not at all. (sighs) Our passage this morning is grotesque and intentionally so. Uh, Maybe you're disgusted and confused about how the story of Ehud could be in the Bible. Or maybe you're like me and every other five-year-old at heart, and you just think this is kind of awesome. Um, No matter the case, this one grabs our attention, doesn't it? Uh, It's surprising. Remember, the book of Judges, um, throughout the book, history keeps on repeating itself over and over and over again. We get the sense that we're telling the same story that we told last week, and that's the same story that we told the week before over and over and over again, because Israel is caught in a cycle, right? The cycle goes like this. Uh, Israel commits apostasy. In other words, they do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. They leave God, and then God delivers them over to their enemies, bondage. Um, And then they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord raises up a deliverer or judge, so that's deliverance, and the deliverer brings them peace for a number of years. And then guess what happens? Back to step one, they leave the Lord again, and the whole thing goes over again, except it keeps getting worse and worse and worse as the moral and spiritual character of the nation degrades. This account follows that same pattern. So we might say, oh, I'm bored of it. Really? Again? Again? Another sermon about apostasy, bondage, deliverance, followed by peace? Ah, but there's a surprising twist. 
uh, even if history repeats itself, God does not repeat himself. He's not caught in the cycle of always doing the same thing. He doesn't feel the need to sit at the, the same lunch table in the cafeteria week after week because he's free, he's sovereign, he's always able to act in new and fresh and surprising ways. And so as we read through this passage, you'll notice that this account is in every way uh, bigger, it's more detailed. Remember last week we had uh, a shadowy king and Othniel, who we didn't really know a whole lot about, and he delivers uh, the, the Israelites unto peace for 40 years. This time we have a bigger bigger piece following after, 80 years. We have more detail, maybe too much detail, and it's funnier. It's funny. It's supposed to be funny. It's edgy, and it's weird, but I want to suggest to you this morning that the edginess and the weirdness make a profound point, and that is that God moves in surprising ways. God moves, notice, not God moved in surprising ways. God moves, present tense, in surprising ways. Look with me at verse 12. Verse 12. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So, what does God do? He strengthens an enemy to come against them. And this time, it's Eglon, the king of Moab, uh, and Moab is the region to the east of Israel. So if Israel is Pittsburgh, uh, Moab is like Monroeville, right? And can anything good come out of Monroeville? Uh, I, was, I was challenged to make that joke this morning. So my father-in-law is from Monroeville, so I love him. Uh, besides having a cool name, Eglon has a knack for diplomacy. And he manages to unite the Ammonites, which are like, that's like Butler, Okay, like to the northeast-ish. And then the Amalekites, who are like Cannonsburg in the south. And the, they all come together against Point State Park, I mean Israel. Um, and they take the city of Jericho, which is called the city of Palms. Okay, they take Jericho. This is a major, major blow. Why? Well, what happened at Jericho? Right? Uh, and the walls came tumbling down. Uh, they, they got, the people marched around Jericho seven times in the book of Joshua, and then they blew trumpets and the walls fell down. God gave Jericho to Israel by miraculous intervention. And then, by choosing their own way here, what happened? They lost it. And I'm reminded of Jesus' words in John 15, 15. Whoever abides in me... And I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Eglon takes Jericho. He exacts tribute from the Israelites. This is basically a heavy taxation without representation. Um, if you know what I mean. And uh, that's what the author means when he says in verse 14 that Israel served Eglon for 18 years. That means that for 18 years, all the best grain and wine and oil and meat, etc., all went to Eglon, king of Moab, not to feeding the people. 
So it's no coincidence to quote verse 17 that Eglon was a very fat man. Uh, this isn't fat shaming. I just want to point that out. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, if you were fat, that meant that you were successful at procuring resources. They didn't have high fructose corn syrup and all kinds of chemicals that uh, mess with our system back then, right? Uh, if you were fat, it means that you would manage to get all the resources. Bravo! Having a big body then was like having a big house today. It was a sign of affluence. It was a sign of power. So Eglon became a very fat man, powerful, affluent. And how did he do it? By robbing God's people. He's rich. But as we're going to see, all of his affluence, all of his power uh, gets turned upside down. This text turns the advantage upside down. And Eglon's immense wealth and power turn out to be the surprising source of his own downfall. And God uses a surprising character to bring him down. Verse 15, verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him, by this left-handed man, he carried it, to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Okay, So if Eglon is the epitome of power, Ehud is the epitome of weakness in the ancient world. Right? He's from the tribe of Benjamin, which already in the book of Judges has a bad rap as being unfaithful. They're also the smallest tribe in Israel. And uh, also, by the way, the name Benjamin means son of my right hand. But Ehud is a left-handed man. There's a deliberate irony here. And being left-handed was a cause of suspicion in the eyes of most ancients. Uh, something was a little bit off about you if you were left-handed. But actually, there may be even more to it than that. Um, the scholar John Courid writes in his commentary on Judges that, quote, a close reading of the text indicates that Ehud was uh, a man bound or restricted or impeded as to his right hand. Uh, late Hebrew renders the verb as lame or crooked of arm. So it may be that Ehud was in fact physically infirm in his right hand. Well, that's the man God uses. It's crazy. That's the man God uses to confront the powerful King Eglon, a left-handed man, suspicious in any case, and maybe, maybe a crippled man. This is surprising. Uh, the people of Israel probably sent this oddball weakling uh, to present the tribute to Eglon because they wanted to look weak and unassuming, right? If you're sending tri tribute to your oppressor, you want to be like, you want to send the signal like, hey, nothing to look at here. We're just a bunch of crippled weaklings. Like, don't worry about us. So they send him. But Ehud, our unassuming hero, has other plans. He crafts a double-edged sword for himself to his right thigh, 
Most people would have strapped it to their left thigh so they can reach across with their right hand. So the old ancient pat-down would have included your right thigh, some people speculate, but probably not your left. So there's a lot of concealment going on here. It's hidden under his clothes. And uh, verse 18, when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. So, you know, they didn't have checks and wire transfers back then. I know. Uh, this is what you go to seminary to learn. Uh, but they, uh, they would have had to carry the gold, the grain, all of it. There would have been multiple, a whole train of people carrying this stuff. But Ehud sends them away after he's presented it. And he himself turned back, verse 19, at the idols or the idol statues near Gilgal. And he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Now, everybody in the ancient world would have been superstitious or religious in some way, right? There were idol statues, which means Eglon worships multiple gods, and he has an interest in finding out what comes from the divine in some sort of way. He doesn't worship the God of Israel, at least not exclusively, but he has some sort of spiritual inclination. And so when Ehud comes to him and says, hey, I have a secret message for you. I just got it by the idols of Gilgal. Eglon's like, oh, perhaps this will be my fortune. But there's wordplay here too. Secret message can also be translated secret thing. So just as Ehud's sword has two edges, his word has two meanings. Eglon expects a secret message or fortune. Ehud is going to give him a secret thing, namely a dagger to the gut. So Eglon commands silence because he has, apparently he trusts this weakling. He instructs his attendants to leave the room and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. Perhaps it was elevated enough to catch the breeze. And Ehud said, I have a message from Elohim, or that's a generic term for God or gods, for, for you. And he, Eglon, rose from his seat. Was this the royal throne or the porcelain throne? We do not know. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Eglon's affluence and power lead to his surprising downfall. And then we see just how smart Ehud is. He understands how powerful system, how systems around powerful people work, right? As he leaves, he closes and locks the doors of the roof chamber. So the servants think that uh, Eglon is up there going potty. Um, they think that he's relieving himself. And so they waited until they were embarrassed. Imagine yourself as one of Eglon's servants. Uh, your Lord is up in the cool roof chamber, and he's taking a really long time. I mean, a really, really long time. And everyone's looking at each other. They're like, okay, are you going to go up? But what if you go in to, like, save his life, and he's, like, just stare glaring at you there, and everything's totally fine. He's just taking a long time, if you know what I mean. 
What happens to that servant? <laughs> They're dead. And Ehud knows this. He's playing the servants off of Eglon. And he uses this time gap to escape. And by the time they finally reach the point of embarrassment and go in and unlock the door and find Eglon's body, Ehud's long gone. And so the powerful, savvy king who made this great alliance, who dominates everything, is brought down and made to look foolish. The strong are brought down, the weak are exalted. And Ehud goes up into the hill country where the Israelites were, because they were hiding, they couldn't live in the plains. So they were decked out in the hills, hiding in caves. And he sounds the battle trumpet and says, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And they follow this unlikely warlord to this overwhelming victory in battle. And after that, the land had rest not for 40 years, like it did under Othniel, but for 80 years, double rest. Now, as I said in the beginning, this story follows that same pattern, does it not? Apostasy, bondage, deliverance, peace. We see that repeated over and over throughout the book of Judges. But here with Ehud, we see hints of another pattern, if you can even call it that. And that is that God has a proclivity for surprise. He moves in surprising ways. He likes to turn things upside down and use weakness to dethrone strength. Uh, We see this in Ehud against King Eglon. We see this in Moses against Pharaoh. We see this in David against Goliath. In Elijah against Ahab and the prophets of Baal. In Daniel against Nebuchadnezzar. The list just goes on and on and on. Paul sums this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. He says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, like a left-handed man, to bring to nothing the things that are. That's a surprising pattern. And at the epicenter of that surprising pattern, we see the cross of Jesus Christ. The holy God not only welcomes people who are from the wrong side of the tracks, uh, but he humiliates himself to go and fetch them out of their darkness. In Jesus Christ, God has chosen to redeem the universe in a really surprising way. We all look around at the brokenness of the world and we think, I know what we need. We need revival of this particular political agenda. Uh, We need a military takeover of our enemies. We need an advancement in technology, the passing of a set of laws. We need cultural movement and inspiration. We need to feel in the church like we're succeeding and we're winning. But not God. He chose to redeem the world through a total negation of himself. He wins by losing. He's exalted through his own humiliation. Nowhere else in all of existence have I ever seen anything like this. It's bizarre. It's frankly disturbing. Um, It just doesn't get any more surprising than that. And so I think this text 
challenges us to reconsider our stale ideas about what God is doing in the world, what God's doing in the church, and even what God is doing in our own lives. He doesn't abide by your internal calculations of what's reasonable for God to do. He's totally free. Uh, He's totally free to move in surprising ways. Blaise Pascal, the famous mathematician and philosopher, uh, he was a great analytical mind in the 1600s, and he carried a journal entry everywhere he went as his most prized possession. It was sewed into the liner of his jacket, and it reminded him of the most significant moment of his life. It reads as follows. The year of grace, 1654. Monday, 23rd November, from about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight. All capital letters, FIRE. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, joy, joy, joy. Tears of joy. And it goes on. Scholars have long debated exactly what happened. What what are you talking about, Blaise Pascal? What happened that night? Well, the simplest explanation uh, seems to be the clearest. He encountered and was surprised by a living God. John Wesley was a missionary for a lot of years. He actually went across the ocean to give up his life for the gospel and had a fruitless ministry. Nothing came of it. I think he had like a spurned love interest while he was over there. It was just a mess. And somewhere along the boat, uh, he met some Moravians. And then uh, later on, he goes back and he's just kind of in the dumps and he's at a meeting, he's at like this evangelistic meeting, and here's another preacher get up and preach another text, nothing fancy, and he says, my heart was strangely warmed. And everything in that moment changed. And actually, that had massive uh, geopolitical implications. It caused a revival that swept and transformed the character of England, and then Wesley came back over to the United States and swept through the colonies along with George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and several others, and the entire character of America was changed. God moves in surprising ways because he's real. I don't get up here and preach this every week because it's like, these are, good, these are just good stories. They are good stories. But I don't get up here and preach this just for the money. I, there's a, I make a lot more money doing something else. There's, I preach this because God is real. He's moving in the world right now. And he's not bound to do what we've seen, what we've seen him before. He's not, he's not bound by anything. He's moving. He moves in surprising ways. He moves in your life right now. And so I, I want to invite you um, to consider what God might want to do. What, what little stones, what insignificant things might God be do- using in your life right now to work his own power? What might he be raising up in you? What things that you see as negative things might actually be something that God is using to bring you closer to his own glory? He works in surprising ways. 
if you look back on it, oftentimes you will think it's funny. Because it is. He's fresh and new and fascinating. So I want to invite you to be surprised, not by the memorial of God, but by the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, fill our eyes with wonder. Fill our hearts with surprise. Will you come and stir and move among us in this room, in this congregation? Will you stir us to repentance? Light our hearts on fire. Um, Will you use weakness as a means of testimony to your gospel in a community that defines itself by strength? All these things we pray through Christ. Amen.